0: Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something.
1: This week on the podcast, we talk about the FTX collapse. We also talk about... Innovative new ways to provide low-cost insulin and others. This is the week of November fourteenth, and I'm joined today by my colleague Matt. How's it going, Matt? I'm great, Nick. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. George is on some well-deserved vacation this week in the great state of Hawaii, but uh, we are keeping at it here at nonprofit newsfeed and have a good one for you. So uh, we're going to start off talking about the FTX crypto collapse. Matt, what do you have for us?
2: Yeah, so uh, this story comes out of the New York Times. It's titled FTX's Collapse Casts a Poll on Philanthropy Movement, and it really outlines the nonprofit impact of of kind of this story. So I'll, I'll give some background for you. So the crypto exchange, FTX, is, is one of the largest such, such exchanges, and it, it collapsed last week. Um, and it really left the cryptocurrency world in disbelief as stakeholders tried to piece together what happened and, and what comes next. The company's founder, Sam bankman fried ATA-SBF, or I should say FKA-SBF, formerly known as, was a visible proponent and donor to the effective altruism movement as well as someone who built a personal brand as a prominent crypto philanthropist. As noted in this story, SBF was perhaps one of the most visible supporters of effective altruism, a community underpinned by a utilitarian approach to giving, where donors focus on giving only to the most Im- like impact-efficient charitable causes. Created by Oxford philosopher William McCaskill, the effective altruism movement faces serious reputational trust issues as supporters worry it was a cover for the reckless FTX founder. It was also revealed by the Times that the two largest FTX foundation grants went to nonprofits where McCaskill was on the board or directly supported the work of effective altruism. SPF, who has also spoken frequently of his crypto-giving, may have abused the crypto philanthropy space to shield himself from questioning, but nonprofits should really still understand that 38% of millennials own crypto and represent a major and growing potential source of donation revenue. What, what do you think about that, Nick? I mean, seems pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, this is, it's really hard to kind of overstate the importance and significance of this development. And and thank you for that summary as well. So as you said, FTX was a cryptocurrency exchange, and we don't need to get into the technicalities of why it collapsed and their liquidity crisis. But what we do need to talk about on this podcast is, in particular, what this means for the crypto philanthropy and the effective altruism. So first and foremost, the effective altruism movement is a movement in the philanthropy space that gives to kind of impact causes as measured numerically almost um as you introduced but uh bankman freed was really really integral to that movement so it's important to know that that space is going to be getting quite a lot of heat it has significant trust rebuilding to do it seems that there was a lot of entanglement between Bankman Freed and the founder of the movement, William McCaskill. So there's going to be a lot of untangling there to do. Um, so that's kind of one narrative of this story. The other narrative of this story is the collapse of FTX has really shaken the crypto world. Uh, prices of, of different currencies have, have plummeted. FTX's uh, tokens are are nearly worth this now and quite frankly a lot of people lost a lot of money and it's it's really sad right this is this is potentially uh criminal uh actions or here and that's resulting in a lot of people but what i think our listeners need to know is crypto's getting rightly i think a lot of criticism right now lots of calls for regulation um and other potential solutions but Profits listening need to know that, as you said, thirty percent millennials still own crypto. We are in the real early phases of crypto movement now. This is still developing technology, and it's not going anywhere. While this is still a significant story, you can't just write off crypto if you're a nonprofit. That's an entire revenue generating stream potentially for donations. And there's a lot of unpacking to do in this story, but. I think we want to highlight that nonprofits should proceed with caution, shouldn't take their foot off the brake or shouldn't disengage completely. It's important to still be really on top of this new technology because it is going to be impactful in one way or another and it's not going anywhere. What yeah, I resources? mean
2: Yeah, I mean I think even you know with with the seemingly negative press that this is bringing into crypto, I think, you know, being a marketer myself, it's it's pretty fascinating because uh, it, it's really testing kind of is is all publicity, good publicity beat. Right? And are people, you know, going to flock to crypto even more? You know, I definitely don't think that this like is like a signal of like the end of crypto. Right. Or like the bubble bursting or anything. But but I think it's a really interesting kind of case study and and why it's important to know where your money is going in the space and make sure that you know, where you're putting your money is is a place that is you know, if it's not decentralized, that it's trusted. I think going back to what you were talking about with um SBF Nick, one thing that really struck me from this article uh, was talked a lot about, or I guess not a lot, but they mentioned how initially SBF really wanted to work on animal welfare issues. And then it was uh, this philosopher. Pascal that suggested he could do more for the world by earning large sums of money and then donating it. And that is the foundation of this effective altruism. That was really interesting to me because I feel like almost a breeding ground for greed, right? Somebody being like, oh, I'm just going to try to earn all this money and, and then I'll give it away eventually. It's the actually giving it away part that actually makes it altruistic rather than greedy. And so I think making sure, again, to my first point, that you really know where your money is going and making sure that, you know, your resources are trusted is more paramount than ever uh, right now, especially in the crypto space. Um, so that, that would be my warning to, to the listeners about this one.
1: Yeah, Matt, I completely agree with you. It seems that SPF either succumbed to or <laughs> abused his relationship with the effective altruism movement for, for personal gain here. again details forthcoming. Um, Being said, crypto philanthropy does have a tendency to disperse funds uh, kind of of greater value than other traditional funnels for philanthropy. So something still to keep an eye on here, but we never want to see someone uh, manipulating philanthropy. Absolutely not. But again, this is not the end of crypto. This is not the end of crypto philanthropy, even just kind of a warning sign of the work we need to do to rebuild this. All right, Matt, why don't you take us into our next story in the summary?
2: Sure, Nick, absolutely. So this one uh, comes from uh, KSNW out of Wichita, Kansas. And this story is about uh the former ceo and cio of saint francis they were indicted in an alleged 10.7 million dollar fraud scheme where they allegedly used nonprofit funds to pay for various things including clothing jewelry and personal travel expenses tell me more about
1: this nick this is crazy all right so it seems that like you said it was kind of uh, two people in cahoots kind of, it was like the former president CEO and this external vendor. There wasn't any kind of a legitimate bidding process. This guy was taking money off the top in the books. Here's the, here's the story here. If that amount of money is moving in your nonprofit, there needs to be eyes. This happens all the, all the time. Someone's taken off something on the top cooking the books, whatever it is, there needs to be multiple eyes and rounds of review on your organization's vigils. Nonprofits are susceptible to fraud, just like every other business and organization in America. And you need nonprofits need to protect themselves. They need to be vigilant. And it seems that the Justice Department's now involved here, but who knows if they'll be able to recover that money. So it's just really important that you, not to say don't trust anyone, but have multiple rounds of review, make sure there's transparency and accountability at every level of your kind of inner financial systems uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen because its it really truly is unfortunate. But thank you for that. Why don't you take us into our next story?
2: Sure. Absolutely. So our next story, something a little more positive, comes from NBC News. Story talks about how California is expected to partner with the nonprofit Civica RX to become the first state to produce its own low-cost insulin for its residents. Nick, you want to talk to us a little
1: bit about this one? Yeah, this is awesome. Insulin is ungodly expensive in the United States without insurance. And Civica RX is a nonprofit medicinal manufacturer. And I love this story because this is the epitome of policy making. Public-private partnerships. Here you have state of California, private nonprofit entity, Civica RX teaming to make low-cost insulin. This is the future of policies, the future of medicine. I everything about this story, um, and identifying that guess what a nonprofit pharmaceutical manufacturing group is to be able to produce insulin with major contributions from the state. I I truly think this is kind of the future of of, of public policy. This is this is awesome and will help a lot of people. And we want to see this rolled out in every state. I can't every state do this, and. And to make the, the tie-in, not to crypt, but to tie this into another big story, um, not to go down that rabbit hole, but Eli Lilly's come under some flack recently on Twitter after someone impersonated their account on the chaos that is Twitter tweeting insulin was free, triggered fall in stock prices. But anyway, now you have senators tweeting at Eli Lilly saying, why is your insulin so expensive? We'll see what happens there. But here's a government actually doing something. Uh, So we love to see this out of the state of California.
2: Yeah, Nick, I think this is like a really good um, example of like kind of taking something good and making it better. I think uh, for those of our listeners who are especially privy to insulin, you know, maybe we have some diabetic listeners out there or people who know some people. In August, Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which actually capped the monthly out-of-pocket cost of insulin at $35 for those on Medicare starting next year. However, the groups have criticized this legislation because the policy leaves out those on private insurance and the uninsured, and it would not lower the list price of insulin. You alluded to this. Um, But I think that that was particularly interesting to me because clearly the government tried to do something to help this cause for like these advocacy groups to notice that it, it didn't help completely. And suddenly now the state is like, or California is doing something to to resolve that issue. Published in the journal, Internal Medicine found that over a million people in the U.S. with diabetes skipped, delayed, or used less insulin than was needed to save money. And so hopefully that number will continue to go down with efforts like this. And I think to your point, it's it's a really great example of, kind of the public, uh, working with legislation to, to benefit everybody. Um, so a really good, feel, feel good story here.
1: Absolutely. That's some fantastic colored story as well. Yeah. We'll definitely want to follow up on this story. I'd love to hear about the one year out, the downstream effects on this, how it impacts families and hopefully helps people. So really inspiring stuff. Yeah. All right. What's our next story?
2: Okay. The next story comes from CBS News. Uh this is particular to New York. New York City, with the help of several of their nonprofits, is stepping up to help migrants find jobs. The the melting pot, the salad bowl, whatever you whatever is your ideal reference or ideal to describe New York. Uh, it's a lot of different people from a lot of different places. And so we're trying to trying to help them, you know acclimate and and get jobs here. So so Nick, want to give me some detail on this one?
1: Yeah, sure. So New York like a lot of other states have seen an influx of migrant workers coming over the border um and even just asylum seekers in general over the past couple of years. Um, but these nonprofits are helping asylum seekers access Get some job training. And in this particular case, his article talked about job safety training for on site construction workers. Um, so, asylum seekers, you might be seeking construction jobs, um, helping them get the training they need uh, to be compliant with safety, know their rights, that which is awesome. Um, also, some other organizations were donating uh, like industry regulated steel toe oh, boots, uh, clothing, just an all-hands-on-deck effort in New York um, with the surge in folks seeking asylum. So we love to see it. These are some of the most vulnerable people in our society. They are not citizens. But contrary to popular belief, folks seeking asylum are here legally. If they are in this country and they are in asylum processes, that means that the government knows that they are here and they are legally granted uh, the opportunity to be here while they wait for their pending asylum cases. So yeah, love to see uh, nonprofits and again, uh, public-private partnerships stepping up to help um, some of the most vulnerable and some of the newest New Yorkers. All right, Matt, we have one story left and this is a feel-good story. Why don't you tell us what it is?
2: It is, this one is great. I actually love this one. This one's from uh, Main Biz and Kind of deep, or it does detail this nonprofit called Give IT, Get IT, and it expanded its work to provide laptops to 87 Afghan special ops veterans who fled their country in 2021 to start new lives in the United States. Nick, I'm going to let you let you go here. I, I This is like super fascinating to me, but I, I'd love to hear your initial thoughts.
1: Yeah. I mean, my initial thoughts are, of course, this comes in the context, right, is I guess we're, what, like 15 months out from the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, of course, when the U.S. troops left, so many Afghan collaborators got left behind. These are people that the U.S. trained and worked alongside. Of course, there was the chaotic evacuation. Anyway, these are people who fought alongside U.S. troops. They deserve the protection and dignity of us working with them. And we just love to see a nonprofit stepping up in this way. And I think it also highlights kind of a real interesting facet of this is that uh, to assimilate into society, to get a job, to do language training, and to get whatever kind of skills you need, you need access to the internet, you need a computer. It is not possible to being a fully functioning member of today's society for better or for worse without internet and computer access. So we love to see organizations um, stepping up in a big way here.
2: Yeah, that's, that's really good context, Nick. The thing that really jumped out to me was how these veterans got to give IT, get IT, because it's not a veteran nonprofit. And so for me, that was really interesting. How did they even find these people? How did they support them? And reading more about the story, actually like a three-chain connection between three different nonprofits, right? So it started with Honor the Promise. They reached out to Tech for Troops, which is a Richmond-based, like Richmond, Virginia-based nonprofit that shares the organization's mission of, of, of Honor the Promise or sorry, the mission to advance digital inclusion, but it specializes in veterans. Yeah. Um but Tech for Troops actually didn't have the capacity to support this effort. So they then referred IT get IT. And it just shows how symbiotic the profit ecosystem can be and how powerful it is when nonprofits work together. That was like the thing that really jumped out to me over anything else in this story was the the power of collaboration in this space. And I think that, you know, as a nonprofit and for all nonprofits listening, like it's really important to see the other nonprofits in your space, not as competitors, but, you know, as as peers that want the same things that you do at the end of the day and ultimately like working together in many ways is is often the best way to achieve your goals. Um, so I guess my message would be to implore, you know, those people listening to to try to like work with other organizations and to achieve more good in the world than what you can do just on your own.
1: Yeah, what an awesome part of that narrative to point. I couldn't agree more. We love, love collaboration and for, I mean, what an important cause. Love to see it. All right, that's it for our show today. If you are not subscribed to the newsletter, go to nonprofitnewsfeed.com. Drop in your email where you can find the links to all these stories in our weekly newsletter. Until next week, we'll see you later. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.
0: This has been Using the Whole Whale Podcast.